You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my talented and lovely co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, guys. Well, I've really been missing you guys. We It's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, and Susan has been on a really big trip to Greece, which I have not heard anything about. So, Susan, fill us in. I, that's my dream vacation. That's my next dream vacation is Greece. So, tell me what I, where I need to go and what I need to see. So, we, um, we flew into Athens, and then we spent three days in Athens. And everybody said, you need to spend two days. But my experience whenever going over to Europe is essentially you have one chance a day to get there. If your flight falls apart, like it's not going to be until the next day. So I was like, I added an extra buffer day, which we almost missed our connection in Chicago. Not because of us, but because of delays getting out of Austin. Yeah, because you guys left at a really bad time when all the flights were kind of messing up. I wondered about that. Yeah, we ended up getting there on time. And so, and I think two days, two full days in Athens is good. Like one day to walk around the city and that type of thing. And then one day to go up to the Acropolis and the Parthenon and see like the theater there. And just, it's, it's amazing, but do it first thing in the morning. Yeah. Cause it was a blazing hot. Yes, it is. I mean, it's Texas hot. Like I left Texas to go to Texas. It was, it was what I experienced here on a daily basis, but it was, it was crazy hot. I mean, it was 95 to 102 every day. Yeah. And I would advise you to go to Athens when you are not elderly and do not have a mobility <laughs> issue. Like it would be a very, very hard place to get. Like I yeah. can't imagine my mom going there. Like she wouldn't, yeah. she wouldn't survive. There is this amazing little elevator on the edge of the cliff that goes up to the Parthenon. Uh-huh. But I, 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 I am not a fan of heights, so I would not want to get on that elevator. Yeah. That would be terrifying <laughs> option, but it, it really is a place that to like, don't go there when you have little bitty ones. Because be physically you don't want to be fit. That's up the mountain, but you you, you don't want to be too old to do it either. And then we went to Crete um, for Ooh, a week. I bet that was awesome. It was fun. It was fun. I mean, Greece is a horror nation, you know, and it is an area that has been conquered and destroyed many, many, many times over millennia. And, uh, you know, I think it, it kind of pays the, the price for it in some respects. I mean, they, they really only have two industries. It's tourism and olives. And so needless to say, in the last few years with COVID, tourism has not been there. Oh, yeah. And it's not been productive. When, yeah. the, when the Greek economy a few years before that was in collapse, you know, it, it's, it, it's been struggling. I mean, it was, it was a neat place to go. Um, it was not as green as I thought it would be. Um, it, would you go there again it was in the middle of the summer and it was beastly hot? Would I go there again? No. Yeah. I am really? so glad I went there, but it's to me, it's a one and done place. Um, like if you said you can go to Italy or Greece again, I would pick Italy in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, the f- was, it was, it was decent. Um, but traditional Greek mm. food is not actually seasoned as much as Greek food in the U S that we have. Interesting. Here. Yeah. 
And and granted, you know, yes, I have to eat gluten free, and you know, I can't eat the baklava and the, that type of stuff. Um, but it, it just even I was traveling with nine people, and so everybody kind of had that opinion that like the seasonings weren't quite as robust. Huh, interesting. As, kind of expected um and half of the people were from Denmark which I don't think of like robust seasoning area (laughs) yeah we had we had a lovely time we had some amazing pictures great memories um and I think it's a it's an amazing place to go I mean just the idea I mean being up at the Parthenon and the Acropolis like these these structures that were built under some very primitive conditions and the fact that you know, they haven't been completely destroyed over the eons. And it was just, it, it was magical getting to that. And I, I mean, getting to stand up and look over the city of Athens and be like, oh my goodness, like this is a civilization that has yeah. stood the test, like had some very surreal moments. Like, like this is special. This is really, yeah. cool. so, you know, we had a great time, um, but we're, we're looking for our next adventure. <laughs> So my funny anecdote about the Parthenon is when I was in college, I was an art history minor and I had this wonderful art history professor and he had this great accent and he talked all about the Greeks and we learned about Greek civilization and the Parthenon. And he goes, and then, of course, at the time I was in East part of Tennessee, I didn't live in Nashville then, but he was like, and then wouldn't you know, the people in Nashville built an exact replica of the Parthenon and they built it like in a hole, whereas apparently the Greek Parthenon in Athens is like up on this hill. It looks majestic. And so the irony, it is a mountain. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the even bigger irony for me is for the last 20 years, I've spent my career at Centennial Hospital right next door to the replica of the Greek Parthenon. (laughs) So, so it's just kind of, kind of funny circle there where you are. Yes, 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 yes. We drove by it when we were in <laughs> So we're going to move on. And, and Susan has mentioned that we've gotten several questions on PCOS. So we're going to make a whole episode out of PCOS questions. So if you've asked one, you may very well hear your question answered. So Susan, start us off. And what's our first PCOS question we're going to answer? All right. Our first question is, hi, doctors. Thank you for the entertaining and informative podcast. My question is in regards to uterine polyps. How common are polyps and are PCOS patients more prone to developing them? Secondly, what is the recommended time between a polypectomy and an FET? As a side note, I would love to hear an episode on the processes of FETs, different preps and that type of thing. And then she also had a second, another episode idea about different types of PCOS getting, it's hard to get information about kind of the spectrum online. Okay. So it sounds like first part of all of that is looking at polyps and timing of polyps and FETs. So when you're timing up a polypectomy and FET, um, I typically don't wait terribly long, like we'll do it. And then the next month, if they are good, we will go straight into it. Obviously, if the lining doesn't look good for some reason, we won't actually transfer. But um, I I can't think of any cases that I've had in several years where it's been a polypectomy and we haven't been able to continue the next month because of something related to the polypectomy. So that you can usually jettison into right away. Um, you might see a difference there if you have a ton of polyps, like you have many, many sites of polyps to be removed, but that's fairly unusual. Most polypectomies you see are taking out one or two at a time, maybe three um, things where you're you're less concerned about that. I would agree 100%. That's exactly what I say. And for some reason, Carrie, I thought you'd probably say, oh, I'll wait a month or two. And I was thinking, 
I, I usually go right into them unless, like you said, unless there's a bunch of spots and a bunch of places that you think need to heal over. I usually go right into them as well. And I think patients do fine. Regarding the question about are PCOS patients more prone to polyps? Um, I think some are. And I think it probably relates more to the estrogen because you're chronically being stimulated by estrogen because of your PCOS condition. You have a kind of a higher level of you just have chronic stimulation of your endometrium. And particularly for patients that don't have regular periods, because of exposure, it probably makes your lining build up a little bit more. Uh, sort of an example of that is the early studies um, looking at hormone replacement therapy before physicians realized that you needed to be on, you know, if you if you have a uterus, you have to be on estrogen, and then you have to be on progesterone to make sure your lining gets stuff slept off. In those early studies where women were not on progesterone, within the first year, something like 80% of women had polyps. So it's probably related to estrogen. And I think if you're heavier, you tend to produce more estrogen. Um, so I think all those things sort of suggest that, yeah, in the PCOS population, we do tend to see polyps more frequently. So I think it also relates to the fact that women with PCOS who are not on hormonal suppression like birth control pills or a Mirena IED or something like this, that they're not having a healthy sloughing or cleaning house of the endometrium every mm -hmm. month. And so mm -hmm. when all of that gets, you know, built up, you essentially get your own version of dust bunny. And so <laughs> we got we to clean like house and everything look good for the new baby there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it is. And, and as Abby mentioned, you know, even in ladies without PCOS, if our OB, um, obesity does increase the risk of polyps. And, and the reason is, is because fat tissue actually produces a form of estrogen. It's estriol instead of estradiol, what is what your ovaries produce. But your uterus, is, it just wants to get anything that's, that seems like estrogen to itself. And, and so we do see it. So, you know, oftentimes people are like, if I have polyps, am I going to get them again? And, and the, the thing is, is you are definitely people who get polyps tend to get polyps unless mm -hmm. things significantly change. So, um, you know, if you can do life changes that can help decrease your weight, help improve your menstrual menstrual cyclicity and different things like that, that's going to help decrease that risk in the future. It's through the dust bunnies, right, Susan? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that dust bunnies. I'm going to use Me that. Too. <laughs> Good stuff. Are we ready for our next one? Let's do it. All right. I have had approximately seven pregnancy losses, some chemical, others right around six weeks. The losses were back to back at the age of 21 and then multiple losses between the ages of 30 and 35. I've done pregnancy loss workups and have had an amazingly caring reproductive endocrinologist. I do have PCOS, but I've never had cysts and I've never had any issues with blood sugar insulin resistance. I am overweight now, but wasn't at 21 when I had back-to-back -back miscarriages. All of this has drawn me to potentially want to look into reproductive immunology before going through with IVF. IVF is pricey and I want to make sure I don't waste a perfectly healthy embryo. What are your thoughts on reproductive immunology? So Susan, I usually defer to you on all of these things. I will say that I have not seen anything that has ever convinced me it's worth telling patients, yes, you should spend this money and this time and this emotional energy on. However... Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that is for more of the fringe stuff that does not include things like thyroid, for example, which is absolutely make sure that someone's looked at your antibodies and all of those types of things. But Susan, I will kick this one back to you because you probably know better than the rest of us on many of the options that are out there for 
IVIG and intralipid and all of the things? You know, I think that, as you said, the um, things that we normally look at that have to do with immunology that kind of realm of things where thyroid function, prolactin, you know, if you have issues with, you know, potentially looking at celiac disease, different things like that, making sure you don't have diabetes, which you mentioned, you don't have insulin resistance and that type of thing. There's just, there's not great data on it. And it it seems like the people who Think that the data is fantastic, or the people who the are making yeah. money from it. Who the test? Yeah, the test for the treatments, and the rest of the people who aren't. And, and and you know, it's the thing is, is like we spend our lives doing testing and treatment, and and I think the way that we practice is that if I'm going to do a test. I need to know that there is something I can act on. It's not just for pure knowledge, but there's something that I can act on. And that acting has some reasonable evidence that it's going to have an impact. And, you know, we don't always agree on what that impact is, and that's okay. But reproductive immunology, I just don't think it, it, in, the, in the fringe things like Carrie mentioned, that, that it's really robust in data. Yeah, there's just not evidence-based data. Um, IBIG has been looked at for probably 15 or 20 years. And, you know, initially 15 or 20 years ago, even ASRM kind of looked at that, that. And most of the data that came back showed that it was incredibly expensive. Um, you have a lot of risk for all the, all the pulled immunoglobulin that you get. Um, and it really wasn't helpful. So it's not endorsed at all by the Society for Reproductive Medicine. And you would think in 20 years, if it really did something, we'd have some good data and we don't. And so I think if you've got a pot with X number of dollars in it, if you say, okay, what's going to give me the best chance of having a baby? I think all of us would agree it would be IVF. It's expensive, but it's worth it. And I think you've been through a lot. And I think one of the huge advantages to do an IVF is at least 50% statistically of the pregnancies that you've had are probably genetically abnormal because we know that happens in very healthy people. And so, you know, even with IVF, we can look at the genetics and we can take away half of the reason why you might have lost those pregnancies. And, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to go any better, but I think I think you're going to have a better chance. And I think that's where you want to spend your money. I agree. All right. Our next one, my husband's 29 and had blood work done recently and his testosterone level was 281. The lab told normal, but low, and he may need some treatments. We have been trying to conceive for a couple of years. Now I'm 28 and was diagnosed with PCOS a couple years ago and I'm not having a period. The doctor told us if he begins treatments for the testosterone, it could affect fertility. I'm wondering how it would affect it and if we should see a fertility specialist at this point. He has not yet had a semen analysis. Go to an REI and do not start testosterone. Don't start testosterone. Do not start testosterone. (laughs) Testosterone is the kiss of death for sperm production. And guys, guys, a lot of the times feel amazing on it. Um, Don't start it until you make your babies. Yeah. And there there are other medications that that he can use to help boost Mm -hmm. up those testosterone levels like Clomid or HCG, but really either your reproductive endocrinologist or a urology specialist who specializes in fertility. Um, But I, I mean, I can tell you, I do more IVF for terrible sperm from the result of long-term testosterone use. And it, it's, it's heartbreaking. So don't start it yet. The fact that you have PCOS, you're probably going to need some help. And so, 
you know, go, go to somewhere that is going to be able to give you the full picture. You know, I always say that fertility is a puzzle and we're putting all the pieces together and there are pieces that involve you and there's pieces that involve him and there's pieces that where y'all crisscross. And so um, you really need to be looking at things, uh, not in a vacuum. Well, if you look at the big picture, I don't know if she mentioned or not whether his sperm count was normal, but uh, you know, has he even had a no semen analysis? Yeah. So let's just do a semen analysis. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's obvious to three of us that you know, testosterone, low testosterone doesn't necessarily mean low sperm count. It may or may not, but get that tested. But the big red flag is you're not having a period. If you're not having a period, then you're not ovulating. So that's that's the reason right there for sure. At least one reason why you're not getting pregnant. And that's a pretty easy problem to fix for most people. So that's kind of where you need to go first. But whatever you do, don't don't have him start on testosterone. You'll be backtracking. All right. Next one. Starting with a little background first. I was anovulatory in my mid-20s. PCOS, very morbidly obese. Got married young and saw an RE who was able to help me get pregnant with minimally monitored Fomara cycles and timed intercourse. I now have a 10-year-old and two eight-year-olds Lestrozole baby. In, wow. two, in 2017, I had a gastric sleeve surgery and lost over 120 pounds. Good I, for her. I've yeah. managed to keep the weight off and I'm much healthier. I also got divorced and remarried during that time. Since weight loss, I've ovulated on my own with 28 to 30-day cycles. So I thought I would finally be able to get pregnant on my own. My current partner is 29 and had good semen analysis recently with progressive motility being on the low end of normal, but everything else being perfect including general motility. My OB encourages to start trying right away because of my age. I had my first ever HSG, which showed a hydrosalpinx in my left toe and possible filling defects in my uterus, which the doctor suggested might be polyps. He also told me I shouldn't need letrozole as I am ovulating naturally. While I'm waiting for my full debrief appointment on the HSG, I am full of questions and anxieties. I know we can't afford IVF in time, first-year teacher and full-time student. Do I push for letrozole to help boost me a little bit and try to get an IUI, which is at least partially covered by insurance? Do I just beg, borrow, and steal and go straight to IVF, medical tourism, somewhere cheaper? Is someone's idea of a really dumb prank that I can finally ovulate on my own, but my insides are a mess. We have only been trying for three cycles, but I'm stuck in an HMO and a fertility-inclined OB for now due to insurance thoughts. So I would say, number one, get those polyps taken care of. Okay. Um, If you have polyps that are big enough and substantial enough that they were actually seen and called out on an HSG, they need to come out. (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, like I don't use an HSG to really evaluate the lining of the uterus. I use a saline ultrasound because I think it's a more specific test Mm -hmm. and more sensitive test. Um, and so if there's something big enough that's showing up on an HSG, it's, it's pretty, pretty substantial. I would recommend having your reproductive endocrinologist take a look at the images for that possible hydrosalpinx um, to see if it really is a hydrosalpinx. Sometimes they can get overcalled a little bit. That's kind of my thoughts to begin with, especially since you've only done three cycles. I'd take care of the polyps and maybe try for a couple more cycles and then progress from there. I would say at a um, laparoscopy with that, we don't do laparoscopies as much anymore for reproductive endocrinologists or as reproductive endocrinologists. But I think this is one of those times where this calls for laparoscopy and hysteroscopy. 
mainly because, you know, I've, for a long time, I've been in a non-mandated, non-mandated state. And so insurance, a lot of times will pay for a laparoscopy and you have a really valid reason to do a laparoscopy. If you truly do have a left dilated block tube that's at the far end, blocked at the far end, we know at least with IVF, it decreases your risk of pregnancy. We don't really know for sure if it decreases your chances of pregnancy with um, just regular IUI. But if you have a big, nasty block tube, it's not doing you any favors, and I would get rid of that. At the same time, they would also be able to assess your other tube, make sure that it looks okay, because even though it's open, if one tube was blocked and damaged, the same thing that impacted that tube may have had an effect on the other one. It may just not be closed yet, but it may be a crappy tube as well. And so it's important for your doctor to look at that. And then also if you have endometriosis, and again, I I wouldn't jump to do surgery just diagnostically to look for endometriosis, but at the same time, when you're having surgery, they can also look to see if you have endometriosis and help get rid of that. And that will increase your percentage points, a few percentage points per cycle, even if you have mild to moderate endometriosis. So I definitely would add in a laparoscopy with that because probably your insurance will pay for it. You know, certainly if you had insurance coverage, I would say go in, get that tube taken out and then do IVF. But either way, I think you probably need to have a laparoscopy to have that tube removed. Um, And then, you know, ultimately, if you do IUIs, if one of the tubes is removed and one of them is still good, then you would do IUIs only on the month that you ovulated on the good side. And, and you could try on the other side as well, but generally it's less likely for you to get pregnant if you ovulate on the opposite side. I, I disagree a little bit, especially if you- I knew you were going to disagree, you. Susan. You always disagree when I say that. We know each other well. I know, I know. <laughs> and especially if you've done the laparoscopy, which she has an HMO, so they may or may not cover the laparoscopy. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. HMOs. Yeah, we don't deal with HMOs too much. Oh, really? Oh, that's a bummer. Um, But, you know, especially if you take out the bad fallopian tube, I mean, everybody kind of thinks of your fallopian tubes sticking out to the side of you and they more kind of droop down like your arms. And so if you've got the bad tube out and you've only got one tube there and you've ovulated. It's got a really long arm. But the fluid goes to the base of your pelvis. You ovulate. That fluid goes to the base of your pelvis. And then the fimbria are like hanging out. And I mean, I've had my fair share of people who've gotten pregnant from the contralateral side. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 I would still move forward even if you are ovulating on the opposite side. Carrie? <laughs> I don't think I have anything to add to such thorough answers. I mean, <laughs> I do tend to, even if you're ovulating on the contralateral side where you don't have a tube, so the opposite side where you don't have that tube, I still go ahead and do the IUI because I, again, I, like I agree with Susan, I've had a bunch of pregnancies that way, but I don't, uh, one of my partners does the exact opposite. And I think both are legit approaches, just kind of depends on your experience. So, um, but I don't really have anything to add because you guys both had really thorough answers. And every time I was like, oh, I'll say this. You guys both said it. So I got nothing. You guys are good. It's kind of like we take our board exams like every week. For those that are listening, you know, like your board examiners throw these questions at you and you have to answer them. So it's like kind of like these are like board exam questions kind of. Here's another one. First off, this podcast has been a blessing to me while we're going through our infertility journey. Thank you so much for the amazing content. And thank you so much for, for letting us know that. I am 30 years old with a few infertility causing diagnosis. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's after my first pregnancy loss. I have also have what my RE believes to be as mild PCOS, AMH of 5.3 with over 20 follicles in each ovary during my ultrasounds. My RE also found what she suspects to be an endometrioma, 3.2 centimeters on my left ovary. I haven't had a laparoscopy yet for the official endometriosis diagnosis, but it sounds extremely likely. To top it all off, my husband, who is 31, has a balanced translocation found oh. in genetic testing. Oh. Yeah. I have had 
three miscarriages and the first one was the only one to require a DNC. I'm getting ready for my first IVF egg retrieval. I am feeling very overwhelmed with all these diagnoses. My thyroid levels have been normal, but my antibodies have been high, greater than 2000. Currently on 25 micrograms of Synthroid. I am curious um, as to your thoughts if I should continue to move forward with IVF without surgery for my endometriosis or if I should have that excise before or after egg retrieval considering my history and other diagnoses. Is there a chance I could have a child based on all of these factors? Thank you for your help and advice. Yeah, and it, it really is a safety issue. At our center, for example, we don't have ready access to hospital. We're not in a hospital. We don't have ready access to anesthesiologists. And it's just, frankly, it's harder to see if you're heavier and we just don't want to injure a blood vessel or bowel or something like that. So, you know, trust me, it doesn't make us feel good when we have to talk to somebody about weight. It's it's a tough discussion to have. And, you know, we, we want you to be pregnant too. And so um, I think, you know, if you don't meet your clinic's BMI requirement, the sooner you can lose a weight, the better. Absolutely. Definitely. All right. Our next one, opinions on using growth hormone for embryo implantation. My case, 36 years old, slightly overweight with no diabetes, have PCOS and, and remission Cushing syndrome, rare case, all cleared, no recurring brain tumor. Brain tumor removal was in 2017. They have completed three IUIs and three IVFs all IUIs unsuccessful. First IVF cycle failed. Second IVF was successful with miscarriage at eight weeks, unexplained findings in complete ERA and had normal results with no inflammation and no signs of cancer. Third IVF cycle unsuccessful. Consulted with doctor and they wanted to try growth hormone due to Cushing's, but my levels are normal since I'm in remission. There are not a lot of studies I have found. PGT all normal 3AA. I, I really am not familiar enough with growth hormone and Cushing and for implantation. For implantation. I mean, I, yeah. I, I haven't seen I really, it for implantation failure either. Yeah. I mean, I, I've used growth hormone for um, poor embryo quality, like when I'm making eggs and embryos, yeah. not for implantation. So that that's kind of outside of my sphere. Yeah. I, I've never used it in that way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it would hurt anything, but I don't know that it would help anything. And it's an ex. That's pretty expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's an expensive guess. So yeah, I don't think we know how to answer that one with data. I will look forward. I look forward to your show every week and have learned so much. Thank you. I am 34. My husband is 40. Trying to conceive for a year and a half and see RE for the past six-ish months. Diagnosed with PCOS, Hashimoto's, and antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Two chemical pregnancies. One before seeing RE and one right after HSG and before any treatment. Tried Clomid one month and had very painful ovulation, letrozole four months. Seemed to ovulate three out of four months, but never when they predicted. Once too early in the scan and other times way after mid-cycle scan and tried timed intercourse. We now seemingly have a confusing anovulatory cycle. Despite PCOS, I have always ovulated since I started tracking a year and a half ago with OPKs and basal body temperatures. Doctor thinks I should try two IUIs. I'm wondering if this is really worth it. No insurance coverage, so it'd be great to save money, but we looks like we've already spent a lot already with no success and wondering if IVF would be a better option. Is IUI indicated in my position for PCOS if you ovulate on your own? We definitely want multiple children and thought of having to go through this is frustrating and heartbreaking year again, and the future is hard to imagine. Thank you. 
So the two resounding things that I hear are multiple children on one hand, but no insurance, no coverage. Again, IVF is the quickest route to pregnancy, the most successful route for anybody. Um, at 34, I think you have time. I don't know what your AMH is. Um, you've had a couple of pregnancies. It sounds like Clemen Letrozole, you know, after doing it that many months. Yeah, if you could add in IUI, it would double your chance. But by double your chance, I mean 5% chance with just oral ovulation induction to 10% chance if you do both of them together. And you spent money, but you haven't spent IVF type money. I mean, it's it's a lot more expensive to do IVF, but it's way more successful. You would have about a 60, 65% chance of pregnancy if you have a genetically normal embryo. And if you're like a 30 average 34 year old with a good egg number, you might have two or three genetically normal embryos from one IVF cycle. So again, my vote would be, I'd be leaning more toward IVF. So I think IVF is definitely a very reasonable option. Um, I do quite a few um, kind of, we call them men's stem cycles or combination cycles where it's oral medicines plus a very small dose of the injectables. And I would recommend more monitoring and mm-hmm. actually triggering ovulation, not just waiting for a OPK to happen. Like take some Ovidrol, take some HCG. Let's make ovulation happen. These meds are there for a reason. And so I, I think, and you can use that in combination with insemination, which is great because realize that when you ovulate on your own, your egg's only good for 12 hours. So if you kind of miss that window, you know, that, that can cause a problem. So um, I, I think that IVF is definitely something that could help you grow the family size that you want. Um, But I I do think that there is a possibility of being more aggressive, but not crazy aggressive. I wouldn't do pure injectables on you with IUI. Um, I don't think that would be a a smart move, but I I do think that there's some, some room to push a little bit harder. I think looking at the fact that you're 34 and you want multiple kids may push you in the IVF direction maybe a little bit faster just because we're not just thinking about this first baby. If we were just thinking about the first baby, then I think, you know, you do IUI, you do a trigger shot, you potentially add in a min-stim type protocol. I like those too. Um, I think relying just on OPKs in the setting of PCOS is not always the best because sometimes they will fake you out. So you think you're ovulating and in reality you are not uh, or it mistimes it or things like that. Like they're not as reliable in that PCOS population. Trigger shots are really helpful for that. But I think you need to look at your big picture goals. If you just wanted one kid, do whatever you want because you just got to get the one. When you want multiple, then you have to think a couple years in advance and you don't want to be going through this again for future kids if you can get embryos now with your cute little 34-year-old eggs and go from there. All right, one more. I have PCOS and successfully received a few and successfully conceived a few months ago on letrozole, but unfortunately experienced a miscarriage at seven weeks and proceeded with the DNC. I decided I would try letrozole one more cycle and then CNRE. I received a positive OPK, but immediately started bleeding after. When I went in for my initial consult with my RE, he did an ultrasound and proceeded to tell me to take letrozole again without waiting for my next cycle to start or without really explaining the bleeding. On my cycle day 10 ultrasound, they found there were no mature follicles and I was still experiencing bleeding. Wondering if redosing letrozole without waiting for a new cycle is common practice as my OB-GYN seemed confused why this was a plan, especially with unexplained bleeding. How old is she? I don't know. I mean, unexplained bleeding at 35 and older, I would, you know, if I were a general gynecologist, I'd want to do an endometrial biopsy and that sort of thing. It sounds like this is sort of a one-off though. And I think, I, I don't know what your REI was thinking, but sometimes in patients with PCOS, you know they're, they're not cycling, their estrogen levels are kind of flatlined. I mean, sometimes I'll do an ultrasound and look if there's not a follicle there. 
Um, and I know that estrogen level is low. There's no reason not to start your stimulation. I mean, you don't need to wait for another period. So I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't follow kind of all the, the chrono, chronological order of everything, but I, I think that may be why they started you back on Letrolol. He just felt like you were having the term we use is anovulatory bleeding, where you're just sloughing off your lining, but it's not the result of ovulation. Yeah, I, that's what I kind of got was I think this is just anovulatory bleeding. And they looked and the follicles were all quiet and small and probably the lining was nice and thin. And, you know, yeah. back 10, 15, 20 years ago, we absolutely did make people have, have periods to in between like doing these cycles. But there was really good data that came out probably 10 or 15 years ago now that showed that that wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't needed. And so, um, and we do see reproductive endocrinologists kind of do that type of thing. OBGYNs tend to do it less often. And, and so the fact that your OBGYN was a yeah. little confused um, not exceptionally surprising, um, just because that, that is, you know, this is what we do day in and day out. And so there are definitely, you know, there's some tricks in our bag that they don't necessarily have or are aware of. And I think that was just probably what this was. Good PCOS episode. All right. Well, we did a lot today, guys. I think we're good. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, um, YouTube. Be sure to follow and subscribe and to stay updated on all things infertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and when to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, everybody.